Hey there, SGO listeners. Tracy Lynn Hall here with our next episode of Keeping Up with the Chemos. While we're calling it that because it has a nice ring, we're actually keeping up with all the new agents and systemic therapies for our gynecologic oncology patients. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine, and this is part of the series with our SGO Education Committee. Tonight, I am joined by... Hi, um, this is Judith Smith. I am an oncology clinical pharmacy specialist and uh, faculty at McGovern Medical School here in Houston, Texas. Hi, I'm Kathleen Moore. I'm a June oncologist at the Stevenson Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Hi there, my name is Julia Canestrero. I'm an assistant attending optometrist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Hi, I'm Karen Lyle. I'm a physician assistant at McGee Women's Hospital of UPMC in Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for our panel for joining us tonight. As we start about talking about getting with new agents, metoxavab is definitely a new agent to the gynecologic oncology arena and a lot of multidisciplinary providers involved. So Karen, do you want to share with us on like your approaches of how to get people trained about using a new drug in your clinical practice? We've just recently, like probably the rest of everybody out there, started using metoxavab and in order to get everybody trained from our nurses to our APPs to our physicians have worked to schedule teams in services uh, so that people have the opportunity to see the slides, ask questions, get the logistics worked out, not only about the drug, but among the team to see who's going to have what role in caring for the patient and executing a plan of care. So one of the things that's important with this is making sure that we as our GYN oncologists communicate with our non-GYN oncology providers. So Dr. Moore and Dr. Canestrano, you want to talk to me a little bit about the communication set up with regard to getting patients from an eye toxicity set point of view? I'm sure I can start. And just couching this with the fact that I work in a setting, an academic medical center that's across the street from the Dean McGee Eye Institute, which is like a nationally renowned eye institute. And a lot of our listeners do not have that <laughs> privilege. So I want to just sort of approach it from both sides. So at our site, we put the first human being on this Mervituximab sorbentanzine before it had that name and have developed the drug over time to this approval. And so our ophthalmologists at Dean McGee have actually become experts on the keratopathy and the mitigation strategies for this medication. And so for us, we're not having to start anything new because we've been in this landscape for seven years. However, had the privilege of being part of a lot of kind of advisory panels as we rolled this out with optometrists and ophthalmologists nationally. And really that informed the rollout for this medication that includes pretty clear communication that you can hand to a patient or you can email or electronically communicate to the optometrist or ophthalmologist, depending on your practice setting that lists kind of what we expect and what we need to know from the every other visit eye exam. And so it makes it easy for our eye care professionals who've not cared for a patient with unmervituximab to understand what is expected, how to grade it, and how to communicate back with the provider so that the best practice can be followed based on those findings. So that's available now for everyone, you know, that the drug is is approved. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Moore. And I'm in a similar situation in that we're lucky to have close communication with the oncologists, but the, this drug company really has made it quite easy for providers who are not within an academic setting to have access to education on how to manage and treat these patients. It comes with a nice grading scale as well. And we'll get into that later, but for 
many eye care providers who are seeing these patients, it's a pretty easy step-by-step flow sheet that they can follow and it will tell them when they need to notify the oncologist or when they can monitor and, and continue on. And I would just add to that patients are treated in a lot of different settings in the U.S. These eye exams can be done by optometrists or ophthalmologists and they can be done, you know, in our practice, truthfully, we take care of a lot of patients in Oklahoma who have financial toxicities and it's hard to get into an ophthalmologist, but they can go to the optometrist at Walmart and they can do the exams that we need. And that can be done kind of across the U.S. So this doesn't have to be a big rigmarole for your patient. Like they can pop in to Walmart, get it taken care of, and then you have all the information you need. And if you need to refer up because you have an eye toxicity, you can do it then. But this really can be not cost prohibitive and easier for your patient than trying to navigate a long wait list to get into an ophthalmologist. I have to say, with this being a new agent in the gynecologic oncology space, Dr. Moore, can you remind all of us how it is that Mer- works. What's the mechanism of action? Sure. So mervatuximab soriptanzine, or now we're calling it Elahir, is an antibody drug conjugate, which is a class of medications that there's quite a few FDA approvals for already in hematologic malignancies. This is our second in gynecology. Of course, tezotimab was the first for cervical cancer. And there's a long line of these medications sort of coming down the pike for our patients that appear very active. So this is an exciting mechanism. You can think of it as sort of a Trojan horse. That's how I explain it to patients that they're programmed to find a a tumor surface antigen that is either only expressed on the tumor or so overly expressed on the tumor as compared to normal that you really just kind of hone in on the tumor. And then it's conjugated through these very sophisticated linkers to highly potent molecules of chemotherapy. In the case of mervatuximab, this is DM4, which is a microtubule toxin. But as these other agents come out, you'll see other chemotherapies as well. This is not paclitaxel. So if someone's had paclitaxel and it didn't work, this does not mean mervatuximab won't work. It is a microtubule toxin, but its efficacy really has no relevance to to prior use of mervatuximab. So it binds to the surface of the tumor. The tumor thinks it's a friend, lets it inside. Then through endocytosis, the conjugated cytotoxins are released and they kill the cancer cancer cell and then diffuse into the surrounding cancer cells and kill them too through bystander effect. So you can think of it as a Trojan horse. And that's how I explain it to patients. Excellent. So Dr. Moore, can you tell us a little bit more about patient selection and when you're testing or recommending being tested for the folate receptor? Well, we were really excited when this rolled out. People were so excited they used up all the kits. We ran out of kits because everyone wanted to test their patient, especially in the recurrent setting. And now we'll get folks caught up and then there'll be some sort of normal cadence moving forward. But right now I'm catching up all of my patients. So anyone that's recurrent, even platinum sensitive, because ultimately they will be resistant or they won't respond super well to platinum. Those are folks who are eligible and I want to know their full receptor alpha status so I can line that up for them. In the future though, I think it kind of depends on the evolution of the test. For example, at our site, we send Keras testing and this is already on that platform. So frontline, we're going to know who our full receptor alpha positive positive tumors are at the beginning. And so we'll be able to kind of decide where in that patient's natural history it lines up right now, platinum resistant, but that's in platinum sensitive studies as well. And so we'll likely move up. So I think it's going to be just part of the panel and it'll eventually be done locally. You can imagine like HER2 is done locally. This will eventually be done locally and it'll probably just be part of the panel that you get, you know, BRCA, you know, HRD, you know, folate and others. I think that's where it's going to go. But right now I would test anybody who is recurrent. That's really great. You mentioned how you counsel patients on the mechanism of action. 
What do you quote them when it comes to response rate and duration of response? We have very consistent data on this sort of across of hundreds of patients of participating in these trials. So it sits right about 33% response rate and a duration of response of seven months. And that is in a population of patients who have been exposed to one to three prior lines of chemotherapy, their tumor is platinum resistant, and they've all seen prior bevacizumab. And so that's the response rate. My whole job really is kind of clinical trials in phase one, mainly is where I live. And so when I explain that to patients, I actually define response rate to them because response rate means something shrinks by 30% or more, and that's the 32%. But a 20% reduction that lasts seven months in my book is fine. I would love to cure this, but that's clinical benefit. And so I always have to be a little bit careful counseling patients, even about standard of care chemo sounds so dismal, but a 20% response, you know, minor response is still clinical benefit. So I, I I tend to be cautious in terms of how I explain the clinical benefit of this in every medicine, because it's not all just resist response for the importance of this drug. This drug works well beyond that 32%. It's a really great point to make. When we're considering patients to put on to mirotexumab, are there any contraindications or patients that are not candidates for this drug? Very few. Interestingly, of course, if you have a patient who has baseline corneal disorder, like a corneal transplant or a baseline corneal disorder, which are very rare, very, very rare. Like cataracts doesn't count. Very few eye things that disqualify a patient, but there are a few. And so you do have to get that baseline eye exam just to make sure you're not exposing somebody, but that's uncommon. And then really it would just be kind of the normal things. You can see some neuropathy with this medication. It's far less than paclitaxel, but it's still there. So if I had someone with terrible neuropathy, I might still try it, but I would be a little worried in that patient population. But it has so little in the way of hematologic toxicity. It's every three weeks. You know, there's not a whole lot that really disqualifies somebody from this medication other than baseline corneal disorders. We've had some great information in this first of the three in our podcast series. As we wrap up this first podcast, I'd like to ask our panel for any like take-home points and that you would like the listeners to take with them today. Karen, why don't we start with you? I think it's very important for us to make sure that the entire team is educated on this medication. And that team includes our patients, our nurses, our APPs and our physicians and how we're going to work together to take care of the patients as they go through this treatment. As Dr. Moore pointed out, baseline eye exam is crucial. You and not only checking the cornea, but it's important to identify any other reasons for decreased vision, whether it be glaucoma, macular degeneration, because we do monitor vision as we go forward. And so we need to know whether vision is coming from keratopathy or change in the cornea versus something that has already existed. Dr. Moore, do you have any key take-home points? You had such so many good tips for us tonight. That was a really good point that was just made about visual acuity at baseline. No one really knows it unless we measure it. I think my big take-home would be testing is really key. So test, 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 so that we know who our patients are and we get to figure out the best time to sequence this medication into their treatment journey. And those folate alpha tests are now more readily available. I actually think they are still limited, but I will say that if neogenomics is still out, for LabCorp, you can just email me. I'll send you the form. Keras is running 
the full receptor alpha for free, Immunogen is paying for it, but it won't be at no cost to the patient. Like if the patient's already had next gen sequencing, you can't run another Keras panel or they'll get a bill, but you can order just the folate receptor alpha from them and they'll run it and send it back to you really quick. Like you get it back in a week and there's no cost to the patient while they're refilling the kits. So that's, I mean, I used that last week. So I think that's still in play. So if people are having trouble getting the testing, I'm happy to hook them up with that information in the intro because I think it's still a shortage. Thank you. Well, thank you all to our listeners and our panel. Great tips on our first in the series of three on mertuximab and the use of gynecologic oncology and recurrent ovarian cancer. Please join us for our next podcast where we'll be talking about getting ready to administer mertuximab in our patients. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on the go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.